0: Well, Father, we come before you just eager to hear words from Jesus. We pray that as he speaks, we will listen and we will learn how to listen today, that we will regard Jesus' words with the authority that they deserve. Lord, help me to convey what Jesus conveyed to his disciples as he taught on the plain 2,000 years ago. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen. So, here's a question for you. Over the course of your lifetime, how many words do you hear or read? How many words? You think about it. Every second, billions of words are out there. The internet, music, music videos, movies. You kind of go down the list, right? Well, according to my estimations, If you live the average lifespan, you're looking at 900 million words are either heard or read in your lifetime. If you read the King James Bible, do you know how many words you have read? 783,137 words. If you've listened to every single sermon I have preached here over 15 years, How many words do you think you have heard from me? 3.5 million, right? That's a lot of words. I get tired just thinking about it. (laughs) And this can create kind of a word fatigue. I remember talking to a dear sister at our church, and she mentioned how her grandchildren instinctively know when to pack up their coloring packets and put away the crayons when I'm preaching, right? That says something. Right, And if you're not careful, like even you know, my sermons can follow this predictable pattern and you treat it with the same authority as you do that airline safety spiel that they give before takeoff or Charlie Brown's teacher, right? Wrong, wrong right? You just kind of tune it out because you get word fatigue because there's so many words out there. What, what makes my words special? And the same could be said about Jesus, right? It's all in the Bible. And Jesus understands that how people regard his words, how they respond to his words, is determinative. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, we see in Luke 6, 46 to 49, our text for today. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep And laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it. Because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great. So Jesus has just... Finish giving a sermon. He talks about the kingdom of God and how blessed are those who, who weep, who mourn, those who are persecuted, because in the next kingdom they will be blessed. He then calls on them to love their enemies, give to those who ask, forgive and you'll be forgiven, judge not, lest you be judged. He calls on them to basically take the logs out of their own eye. He, he talks about the importance of bearing fruit. And then he closes, he lands the plane with this warning. How you respond to my words says everything about you. You see, Jesus is basically pushing back on the common temptation to see his words as advice. Right? A lot of times when you read the Bible, do you see Jesus as your advisor or your authority? Like when you have somebody who is your advisor, you position yourself as some sort of authority, right? A king has advisors. I might have my life coach. They give me advice, and I decide whether or not I'm going to take it. Where somebody is your authority when they're giving you words or commands, it's not advice, it's an order. Do you see the difference? And so what Jesus is clearing up here is how you respond to my words really demonstrates how you respond to me. Am I your advisor who advises you at your behest, or am I your authority? And so this is a paradigm shifter here. When you read the words of Scripture, they're not like any other words. They're a command. Jesus expects them to be obeyed. Now, to move to this point, we're going to move through the confrontation, the parable, and then the meaning, and then kind of dive deep into this whole idea of how do you respond when you read the scriptures. So let's look at the confrontation. So Jesus, as you recall, he's addressing his disciples. These are people who have gathered to hear him speak. He chooses 12 of them to become his apostles, and then he gives the Sermon on the Plain. Now, within this group of disciples, Jesus understands that there is a subset of them who will say this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? There's a group of people who will call him not just Lord, right? Lord means sir. It's a deferential title. So some of his followers will call him Lord, but, but these followers do more than just call him Lord. He is Lord. Lord. He's not just the boss. He's the big boss, right? He is in charge, and so they will identify themselves as disciples and followers. They will call him not just Lord, but Lord, Lord, but they will not actually do what Jesus commands them to do, Jesus tells them, you need to forgive those who ask for forgiveness, and they just say, you know, I hear you, Jesus, but my heart's just not ready to do that yet. Thanks for the advice. Jesus calls them to store up treasure in heaven. I know that's really a good idea, and normally I would do that, Jesus, but, you know, I have other considerations I have. Thanks for the advice. These are people who see Jesus as an advisor, but not the authority. And so Jesus basically points out that this is a major inconsistency here. You can't just call me Lord, Lord, and see my words as optional. Because really what you do with these words is really revealing of of just who you are or what kind of Christian you are. You Remember that last week. Jesus says in Luke 6:43 43-45, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from the brandable bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Right? How do you know an apple tree is an apple tree? Because it produces apples. How do you know somebody is good? And, and again, good is not, not something that's inherent in humanity. We talked about how John the Baptist talks about bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist taught about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When somebody is changed, transformed, and born again, they now have the capacity to produce good fruit. They're a different kind of tree. And so... Jesus is making the point that you can say all you want, but if the fruit is not there, it's not there. If somebody calls Jesus Lord, Lord, and doesn't do what he says, they get Jesus all wrong. They don't believe in the biblical Jesus. They believe in their version of Jesus, where Jesus' will happens to perfectly coincide with their will. If you find yourself always thinking that Jesus agrees with you, there's a problem, right? Authority is tested when he tells you to do something you don't want to do and you do it, right? This is not conditional headship. I will follow you wherever you go as long as you're going where I want you to go. Jesus makes it very clear. You can't call me Lord, Lord and ignore what I tell you. And then he gives you this parable. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. So notice, everyone, they one, come to him, and then they hear his words, and then they do them. Now, the audience that Jesus is addressing has done the first two. They have heard about Jesus, that Jesus is a spiritual superstar. He is walking into these synagogues and giving these insightful electric messages. And everyone is like, I've never seen anything like that. This guy teaches with authority. And this authority is demonstrated as he's casting out demons. Get out of there. I mean, that was something to be seen. He casts out demons, he heals diseases, he challenges the spiritual authorities. I mean, these people are mesmerized by this potential Messiah. And so they are there, and when Jesus speaks, they're listening with rapt attention. Wow, I've never heard anything like this. So they got the first two things right. They came, they heard, but the issue is, will they do? Will they do it? Will they take the log out of their own eye? Will they forgive? Will they love their enemies? This is not just advice. He's not just saying, you know, you really need to let go of your bitterness so you can be a fuller, more complete person. He's making it very clear. The reason why you need to forgive is because I am telling you to. He is the authority. He's not the life coach. And he gives this illustration about the one who comes, hears, and does. Verse 48. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Now, have any of you guys built a house? It's a pain, that's what I hear. I've done some light remodeling, right? There's some stress. Becky and I are happily married, but that's in spite of that trial, not because of that trial, right? And that's just making decisions. But if you were to build a house, you get the backhoe to kind of excavate and maybe dig the basement. You have a cement mixer come and pour the foundation, pour the basement. You have uh, a truck that comes in with the trusses and the drywall. Uh, you use a lot of machinery, and after about seven or eight months, you have a beautiful house put together if everything is on schedule and there's no supply chain issues. Now, in that day and age, building a house was done without the assistance of any tools that are mechanized. You had planes, saws, hammers. I mean, that was it, it was all analog. And as you're building this house, it's not like you had this the savings. You still had to maintain your agricultural enterprise or whatever business you had to feed your family. And so, here's a man who wants to build a house. Now, when you build a house in that part of the world, you do not build during the winter because it's windy and wet. You wait till the summer when you have reliable weather when you can build. Now, the soil in Israel at that time was hard-packed clay. And so during the summer, when it's all baked, it was hard as a rock. But this wise builder, we know he's wise because that's how Jesus labels him when he retells this parable in the Sermon on the Mount, realizes that at some point in time, the weather conditions are going to change. Therefore, wisdom and best-building practices dictate that I go ahead and chip through this hard-packed clay. And so he does. Day by day, inch by inch, with a a pick and a shovel, he finally digs four, five, six feet down to the bedrock. And then he takes some rough-cut hewn stones, lays those down, Puts some mud in there, starts building the walls of more rough-cut hewn stones and mud and plaster. And then he puts the roof and he, he finishes it just in time for the rainy season. And the rainy season comes with a bang. The rain begins to pour, and it's very clear that this is not the gradual rain that just gently greens the earth. This is a hard, pounding storm, and the wadi that's on his property begins to fill up. It becomes a, a creek, and then a stream, then a river, then it breaks forth, and it starts to rub against the side of the house, and all that hard-packed clay becomes the consistency of chocolate pudding. And it begins to strip the dirt away, eating away the soil. But at the end of the day, the house still stands. Because it is built on the strong foundation that goes down deep to the bedrock. That is a wise builder. In contrast, you see the other man. Verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. Same situation, and he looks around and he sees his neighbor killing himself, digging into the earth. And thinks, you know what? Seems pretty hard to me. So he puts kind of a base layer of rock down, and he begins to to build the walls, covers it with mud and plaster, and you know what? He's not killing himself. He's able to take some time off a little bit, tend to his business, tend to his crops, and he gets it done in plenty of time. Same storm comes, pounding against the roof. The waters rise, the flood breaks out, and all of a sudden, that chocolate pudding consistency reveals that that is not hard rock. And so what happens when the soil begins to remove? The the foundation begins to drop. Some of the stones in the wall drop out. The walls begin to bow and at the end of the day, it collapses on everyone inside. It is a total loss. Now, we need to decode this. What is exactly meant by the storm? Well, one popular reading is, the storm is the trials of life. One of these days, you're gonna get cancer, incur some sudden death, and unless you build your house on the rock, you're gonna just absolutely fall apart. There is truth to that, but that's not necessarily what he's talking about in this parable as far as the storms of trials. You see, biblically speaking, storms are often emblematic of judgment. God judged the earth in the times of Noah with what? A rain storm. They were safe in the boat, but the storm was outside. In fact, when you look at just this whole concept of why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do, judge, Jesus has judgment on the mind. Like, you guys are rebellious. And this is what's awaiting you if you ignore my words. In Jeremiah twenty-three nineteen through 20, Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. So notice, storm of the Lord, wrath of God, judgment. And then probably the, the best parallel to this is found in Ezekiel 13, 10 through 11. God tells a wayward nation, precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. So these are false prophets giving assurance to people who don't deserve assurance. And and they, they, they construct a wall and they make it beautiful. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and the stormy wind will break out. It didn't have the foundation, the wall fell. In this case, the people will be subject to the storm of judgment. You know, one of the great comforts of a blizzard, it's one thing to experience a blizzard when you have a full pantry. You have power, and you don't have to go anywhere. You can kind of sit and just kind of watch the storm and be really glad. That you're not out there, but you're in here. Agreed? In the same way, when you are in that house that's dug down deep and you have built your life on the word of God, you recognize the authority of Jesus and you have a conviction that what he says matters. When the storm of judgment comes, there might be wrath around you but your house will not fall because you built it on Jesus and the authority of Jesus Christ. In contrast, you think about that father, the foolish builder. As his family is inside this house, he knew he took a shortcut. He knew that the water was rising. He knew that they were in big trouble. You leave the house; he gets swept away by the flood. He hoped that somehow, against his idiotic decisions, the house would still stand, but it doesn't. It collapses, and great is the fall. Everybody inside dies. On the night of June 24, 2021, Champlain Tower South, a condominium complex near Miami collapsed. Now, what's really interesting about this is that this was a high-priced beachfront condo. To buy a condo in this complex would cost you $650,000 for a condo. These were beautiful apartments. People were living the dream on a beach in South Florida. But what they didn't know was that the foundation was being damaged by water. There was shoddy construction and all-around neglect. There was no real trigger. It just collapsed, and 98 people died. See, many people can live this life of a luxury condo. Everything looks good. I'm enjoying my life as it is right now. I don't need to think about the foundation. Look, everything's fine. But when they meet Jesus, and they might say, I was a good Christian, Lord, Lord, he's going to say, I'm sorry. You did not do what I told you to do, and now you will collapse. You see, there is a group of Christians out there who who will say the word, Lord, Lord, but they don't actually do what Jesus tells them to do, and yet they are convinced that they love the word of God. They love the Bible, but their approach to the Bible is all wrong. I'll give you three examples. Some people read the Bible for inspiration. You don't read it for content. You read it for inspiration. You read it for advice. It's a a tool for meditation. Uh, I'm not sure if it's still a craze, but a number of years ago, there was something called Lectio Divina, which was a a way of, uh, of basically using the Bible to meditate. It was an ancient practice developed by Catholic monks, and it starts like this. You get into a nice, relaxed, isolated position. You're by yourself and you just read the word over and over again. For no tree bears good fruit. No good tree bears good fruit. And you just say that over and over again. And as you're saying that, you are listening in your mind for that still small voice. So you're reading the word here. But reading the word is a way of hearing another voice that's being spoken to you. And as the voice speaks to you, you begin to pay more attention to that voice who's telling you how to apply this word. And then you reach a point where you just empty your mind to hear what God has to say. So you're using the word to get into a trance, and in that trance, God will give you directions. I've known people who pursued unbiblical divorces while practicing this kind of meditation. Right? You read the word so that God will speak to you, and when God speaks to you in a subjective way, that will be what you obey. Do you see the problem with that? If you want to hear the voice of God, do you know what you do? You read the Bible out loud. If you want to know what God wants you to do, you read the Bible and then you do it. Isn't that much easier? Some people will read the Bible for ammunition, right? You have, some people read the Bible, Bible for inspiration, also for ammunition. They, these are the people who love theological controversy and debates. And when you're in a theological debate, and I understand this, you are energized in your Bible reading. You're debating predestination versus free will, There it is. There it is. You find it there. Look, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Well, how does someone become good or bad? That must be something that the Lord does. There's predestination. Boom, can't wait to share it on the internet post. Right? And it's energizing. But here's a problem. Knowledge puffs up, right? The love edifies. There can be a sense where I have known many people who, who believe that Christian obedience is basically about getting your doctrine right. Their life is a mess. They are disobedient. They're hooked on some sort of substance. And yet, they're passionate about defending doctrine. Because they read it for ammunition. It is a way of poking holes in other Christians. It's basically elevation by negation, saying, as long as my theology is correct, I'm okay. Those people are going to be stunned at judgment. They didn't do what Jesus is telling them to do. And then there are some people who read the Bible for information. These are people who have a natural curiosity about, about the Bible. Thomas Jefferson loved the Bible, he would study the Bible. He even came up with his own version of the Bible where he would take a razor and glue and when he saw something like for no good tree bears bad fruit nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, he would take that out and that was part of his new Bible. But all the stuff about Jesus being the judge or Jesus rising again or Jesus doing miracles, he'd leave that behind. I mean, sadly, I have gone to seminary with many people who are very good students and got advanced degrees that no longer believe the Bible. For them, the Bible was information. Scholarship was something that they were pretty good at. They were pretty good at researching and writing all those papers and understanding what it says, but they never wanted to know what to do. Right, that's that's another way. So how do you read the Bible? Instead of reading it where it gives you advice, right? When somebody gives you advice, you're up here, right? And your advisors are down here. You're the king who gets consulted about how to live your life. The right way to read the Bible is the Bible is up here and you're down here. You are instructed by the Bible. You are the learner. You are the disciple. When the Bible tells you to do something, you do it. And the heart of someone who's been born again is to long for that kind of instruction. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that, is by it, that by it you may grow up into salvation, right? If you have a baby, right, you guys know this, they want milk. They are desperate for it. That is something that brings them comfort, that grows them. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, an appetite for God's word. And, and why do you want God's word? Is it to help you meditate on something else, to win arguments? Is it, is it designed to uh, just inform you? You want the word because you want to grow. You want to change. You want to become like Christ. After laying out all the doctrine of Romans, Romans 1 through 11, great passage of Scripture, Jesus, I'm sorry, Paul pivots with this. He says in Romans 12, 1 through 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So you understand the greatness of God, you present your body as a living sacrifice. You're not to be slaughtered, you are on the altar. When somebody is a sacrifice, if you give a goat to the priest and he puts it on the altar, that belongs to God, right? It's not yours anymore. So the idea is you present yourself to God, you're on the altar, you belong to him now. And now you want to know, Lord, how do you want me to live? How do you want me to think? What do you want me to do? And that is given through the word. The Daily Bread shares a story of a young Korean man who found the missionary who led him to the Lord and wanted to share with him how he memorized the Sermon on the Mount. So he finds the missionary and he recites the entire Sermon on the Mount. And the wise missionary says this, It is good that you have memorized it, but are you doing it? And the Korean man said, well, that's how I learned it. I tried to memorize it initially, but it wasn't working. So what I would do is I would read the passage. I'd apply it by doing it to my neighbor. And when I started doing that, I was able to remember it. Right? Every act of obedience reinforces your conviction that Jesus is in charge. The more you obey, the more you reinforce Jesus' authority in your life. The word is meant to be obeyed. James tells us in James 1, 22-25. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he looks like. So James uses the analogy of a mirror. Now mirrors were not plentiful back then, right? We have all kinds of ways of knowing what we look like. You, we have video, we have cell phones. You can, you can turn around, you know, and just do, you know, use your cell phone as a mirror, basically. I've seen it done. But mirrors were not plentiful. They're, they're often the, the possession of the rich. Maybe you might have still water someplace, but but what you look like was kind of a mystery to you. You didn't know if you had spinach in your teeth. Are my eyes blue or brown? I don't really know. People tell me they're blue. And so the idea is that the mystery is solved. Like, oh, you see a mirror. It's like, that's what I look like. Okay. I guess I do have blue eyes. And then you walk away and somebody says, by the way, what color are your eyes? I don't know. Do you see the folly of that? Or it's kind of like going to the mirror after eating a spinach salad and you see the hunks of green all in there. And you're like, oh man, I have a lot of spinach. Then you put it away. Huh. That's folly, right? See, what the word does is the word shows you who you are so that you can be different and more like Christ. He goes on to say in verse 25, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. The law is meant to liberate you from your sin. It tells you to break off that immoral relationship. It tells you to forgive that person who asks. It tells you to love your enemy. Those aren't optional. Those are to liberate you so that you can freely obey your king, your new king. Now, imagine a king who leaves his country on a diplomatic mission. Yeah, we're going to go back like 1,000 years ago, okay? before technology. And he leaves the country in the care of his prime minister, and he says, I want you to do three things. Number one, collect the taxes. Two, fund the military. And three, pave the roads. Okay? You got that? And while he's away, he writes a bunch of letters to his prime minister to just remind him, this is how you collect the money, this is who you need to pay for the military, these are the roads that are a priority. Well, he comes back to his kingdom, and all the roads are in disrepair. The military is disbanded. And he has a bunch of freeloaders living in his house with the prime minister. And he looks around and looks at the prime minister and says, What happened? Didn't you read my letters? And the prime minister said, Yes, I did. I read every one. What's the problem? He took it under advice. The king was not his authority. You see, when you read the Bible... It's not advice; it's an authority. You order your life accordingly. Now, if I may, I'll, I'll share with you a little bit of my own my own story with this. I I grew up in a marginal Christian family. We went to church when it was convenient, and the church we went to was not necessarily biblically faithful to the gospel. My impression of evangelical Christianity was formed by watching The Simpsons and Ned Flanders. Corny, cheesy, Jesus is Jesus that you're doomed to a boring life of listening to counterfeit Christ, you know, music that is not quite the real thing. But I remember meeting some Christians in college and, and really being kind of drawn to them as they seemed to be sincere and earnest and I'd go to Bible studies and, and there was a lot of cool stuff in the Bible. But that January, or maybe it was February, I did a manmaker retreat, and that's when they really kind of confronted me on various sins in my life that needed to be addressed. I remember very vividly thinking, to become a Christian, basically, it means that Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in charge. Like, that was faith, right? It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is in charge. And whatever Jesus says, I need to do it. Now, granted, there's always forgiveness for failure, Does that make sense? But it was a different orientation to reading the word. And so the Great Commission says, make disciples of all nations. And I just read the Bible, and there's my roommate who's not a Christian. Well, guess what we're gonna be talking about, Chris? Seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added to you. So even in my test and all these term papers that I'm writing, I still need to seek first the kingdom of heaven. What does that look like? Well, it means I still go to church and I keep my spiritual commitments. You know, if your right hand causes you sin, cut it off. If your right eye gouges, you know, causes you sin, gouge it out. Maybe I ought to change the type of movies that I go to and watch. Does that make sense? The word says something, and I need to do it. Well, is it good for me? It doesn't matter. It's not advice. It comes from divine authority. You see, Jesus doesn't need to explain himself to you. He is the authority. He's your king. And unless you know Jesus as that, you don't know Jesus. Unless he's truly your authority, you don't really know him. See, there's a lot of words that are, that are spoken, a lot of words that are said. But Jesus makes it very clear that my words are different. You do not tune them out. You take my words, and you build your life on them. You live with conviction. My words are not just to enhance your life, they are to direct your life. Not all words are equal. Consider Jim and John, brothers who love the great outdoors, who decide that they want to go to El Capitan and climb it. El Capitan, I'm watching documentaries on rock climbing right now, so it's on the brain. It's the biggest, baddest rock climbing wall in the world, 3,000 feet straight up. And they want to climb it. They go to the climbing gym, they go to the outdoor store, and they say, this is what we want to do. And the salesman, who's also a very accomplished rock climber, um, kind of detects that they don't really know what they're talking about or what they're doing. He says, okay, if you're going to climb, let me tell you what you need to do. He gives them the equipment, the harnesses, the ropes, the helmets, the gloves, the cams, the carabiners, the anchors. He teaches them some technique. And then he says, above all else, if there's one rule I want to give you, always double check. Double check your harness. Double check the rope. Double check the knot. Always double check. You got that? I've done this a long time. I know what I'm talking about. Always double check. And so they both go to the base of El Capitan. And Jim looks at it and says, I got this. Well, I did buy all that equipment. So he kind of throws on the harness and he you know, kind of hooks up a, you know, a rope here and a rope there and, and just climbs with great speed. That's Jim. John, on the other hand, is, is very cautious. He puts on his harness, verifies it. He verifies that he's tying the right kind of knot. He double-checks it. He carefully plods his way up the canyon, and, and Jim is almost to the top. When he's almost to the top, he sees a storm brewing on the horizon, a rapidly building thunderstorm. John is well beneath him. He sees the same storm. In a matter of minutes, that storm will come with thunder, hail, and wind. Who would you rather be? Who would you rather be? You see, all of us are going to stand before Jesus. All of us will be subjected to the storms of judgment. And because Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins, there is a provision for our sin there is atonement that is offered but it is mediated by faith but not all faith is the same those who say lord lord and do not do what jesus tells us to do don't have faith that he's really their king or their lord do they but those with the robust faith and trust in jesus when that storm of judgment comes they will survive and be welcomed into the new kingdom and the new world with their king jesus So here's the question. When you read the Bible, how do you respond? Is Jesus your authority or your advisor? And if you say, well, he's my authority, do your life choices back that up? Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you, and I pray for everyone here. Lord, I know in this flock, in this audience, that there are some who will say, Lord, Lord, and just not do what Jesus tells them to do. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will cut them to the core, that you will bring them to a crisis point, that this sermon, these words, this warning that Jesus gives will lead them to respond in the right way. Lord, I thank you for so many faithful brothers and sisters here who do regard you as their authority and live their life with conviction. May we be a continual encouragement to the others who are on the fence that they can fully trust in Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.